You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report Podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 27th day of August, 2012. Thank you one and all for tuning into the podcast once again, and I'd like to remind all of you to check into my website if you have not yet done so, or even if you have, at CorbettReport.com to find previous episodes of this podcast, articles, interviews, videos, and other media that I've created over the past five years, and links to all of the sources cited in today's episode. So once again, thank you all for tuning back into the podcast, and you will have noticed that I took last week off. I took a grand total of one day off to go camping out in the beautiful wilderness here in western Japan last weekend, and as a result, there was no podcast episode, but we are back here every week, every Monday, as always. So once again, thank you for tuning in. Just like to let you know about some of my media appearances that uh, are ongoing or coming up, etc. For example, later today, for those of you who have downloaded and are listening to this on Monday, the 27th of August, I will be on the Jack Blood show on uh, DeadlineLive.info. It's on the No Agenda Global Stream. You can find out information about that on DeadlineLive.info. And the plan is for myself to be on Jack's show on the last Monday of every month. And he will be on my show. We haven't exactly set the time, but probably he will be on as an interview guest on CorbettReport.com around the middle of each month. So you can look forward to that. Also, I was on StopImperialism.com, the podcast of Eric Dreitzer, earlier this week. And the link for that will be in the show notes for today's episode. And once again, I hope you will subscribe to his podcast. Again, coming out with lots of very interesting interviews and podcasts and information on a weekly basis there at StopImperialism.com. I have also recently recorded an interview with the Smells Like Human Spirit podcast. And once again, you you will be able to find them in the links for this uh, this episode of the podcast. And I believe that episode is scheduled to be coming out later this week. So you can stay tuned for that. And uh, finally, I will also, of course, as every week, be on the uh, the National Intel Report this week on Tuesday with uh, John Statmiller. I will also be on Radio Liberty with Stan Monteith this Monday as every week. So lots and lots and lots of media out there that I will be on and associated with. And once again, I will keep people up to date with all of my media appearances, including RT and everything else, as it's happening on my Twitter feed at twitter.com slash Corbett Report. So please uh, follow me on Twitter for more on that. And since we have a ton of information to get through, as every week, let's get straight into it. Welcome to episode 240 of the Corbett Report power corporation exposed. For those keeping their eye on French electoral politics, and specifically the downfall of Nicolas Sarkozy earlier this year, you may have seen a very interesting story playing out in the immediate wake of his presidential loss. And that was that the floodgates were open and the investigations began into some of the scandals and kickbacks and bribery and underhanded dealings that allegedly helped put Sarkozy into office and keep him there over the years that he held reign over France. And this goes back to L'Oreal heiress Lillian Betancourt and uh, even some alleged kickbacks and things that he was receiving from Libya. So in the wake of this police investigation into Sarkozy, there was a very interesting subplot that developed in all of this. And uh, if you blinked, you would have missed it. But for those who did blink and miss it, let's turn to the Mail Online for a little bit on this story. And they ran a story back in July of this year under the headline, Sarko and Carla fled to Canada hours before raid on Paris home and new police would co- come for them. And in this article, it goes on to detail some of the uh, the woes of the Sarkozy clan in the wake of this police investigation, and the fact that in the, uh, in the wake of this investigation, and as the police were tearing apart his offices, etc., looking for uh, information about these alleged bribes and kickbacks, Sarkozy and his wife fled to Canada, specifically to the estate of someone named Paul Desmarais. 
Now, who is Demeret and what is his role in all of this? Well, for a little bit more on that, let's turn to this article, which says, quote, Desmarais, the CEO of the media and financial services giant Power Corporation of Canada, is said to be worth well over 20 billion pounds. Sarkozy has frequently described Desmarais as a mentor, saying in 2008, If I am president today, it is in part due to Paul Desmarais. In February 2008, Sarkozy returned the favor by giving Desmarais the Grand Croix, Great Cross, of the Legion of Honor. One of Desmarais' daughters, Sophie, was married to Eric Lamoine de Sarigny, a former close advisor to Sarkozy, who has also been implicated in the so-called Bedencourt affair. During his presidency, Sarkozy was frequently accused of solely being interested in the super-rich. The super-rich indeed. Well, Paul Desmarais and the Power Corporation of Canada are certainly people that we should be more familiar with than I imagine most of us are. And if you've been following my interview feed on CorporateReport.com in the last few days, you will have at least heard a little bit on this subject. But let's start exploring it a little bit uh, further in further detail. And so, as always, why don't we start with the official sources and uh, hearing straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, so you can turn to powercorporation.com for more about the Power Corporation of Canada and its official company history, which you'll find in the About section of that website. And in that company history, there are sections on the foundation and transformation, restructuring, expansion, management changes, etc., that have taken place over the decades. But uh, the long story short, as it were, is that the Power Corporation was founded on April 18th, 1925 by A.G.J. Nesbitt and P.A. Thompson, principal, principal partners in the Montreal investment firm Nesbitt, Thompson & Company. Their firm had begun underwriting and investing in the construction and promotion of Canadian hydroelectric utilities almost immediately after its own founding in 1912. And it goes on to talk about how Power, Power Corporation became one of the major uh, players in the Canadian utilities market in the early part of the century. However, in, 19, in the 1950s, there was a drastic change. Again, reading from the website, during the 1950s, Power Corporation continued to take minority positions in power companies across Canada. Most importantly, it bought shares in Shawinigan Water and Power, one of the largest privately owned hydroelectric producers in the world, with massive installations in Quebec. Meanwhile, its successful engineering construction divisions were engaged in designing and building innovative power projects from British Columbia to Newfoundland. The 1960s brought dramatic change. It was forced on Power Corporation when provincial governments in Canada pushed ahead to nationalize the hydroelectric industry as an essential public service. Between 1962 and 1964, in fact, more than 80% of the value of the corporation's portfolio was liquidated. Now in the hands of the founder's sons, A. Dean Nesbitt and Peter N. Thompson, Power Corporation needed a new strategy. Instead of investing in a wide range of companies over which the holding company had little control or influence, the corporation used its extraordinary cash position to purchase large interests in fewer, more diversified companies in energy, finance, industry, and real estate. So, in effect, Power Corporation became a holding company, which, instead of actually being, as its namesake would denote, a uh, company that, that owned power uh, uh, companies and, and projects throughout the country, was diversifying into many different businesses, but most specifically into finance and industry and real estate. So, at that point came a, a very sharp turn in the company's history with the coming to power of a new CEO. And we can pick that up again from the Power Corporation About section, which talks about this turning point in the company's history. Early in 1968, the leadership of Power Corporation passed from the founding shareholders to financier Paul Desmarais. Born in Sudbury, Ontario, Mr. Desmarais turned around his family's ailing bus service as a young man, bought provincial transport and imperial life assurance, and expanded into a broad array of investments through TransCanada Corporation Fund, a Montreal-based holding company. He gained control of Power Corporation following a share exchange offer with TCCF. Well, that's the long story short, as it were, but for a little bit more detail about the Desmarais and how they came into power of Power Corporation and specifically what they did with that power... Let's again turn to the horse's mouth and an interview that was recently conducted with 
Paul Desmarais Jr., the son of Paul Desmarais Sr., who helmed Power Corporation throughout much of the 20th century. Power Corporation of Canada generates cash these days rather than electricity. The story actually dates back to 1925, and each generation brings to the table yet another set of creative business genius. Well, the latest generation is here with me today. Paul Demery Jr. is the chairman, and with his brother Andre, he's the co-CEO of Power Corporation of Canada. Welcome to NCAD Knowledge. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Your holdings today... It's an interesting story. They're, they're a center basically on financial services, some publishing assets. How did this shift from, uh, to finance happen from uh, actually from, from buses? It started uh, with electricity and the government nationalized the company and the company fell into a lot of cash. And at that time, the executives invested in a number of companies. And of course, they fell into this huge pool of money and they invested. They must have had close to 50 companies. And there were a whole myriad of them. And my father came on the scene about at that time when they got into trouble because they'd bought these 50 companies, got into trouble. My father came on the scene and he did what they called a reverse takeover. It was one of the, probably the first in Canada where he built a small bus lines that he had inherited, in a sense, from his mother, all five buses. And uh, he built that into a bigger bus line and built it sort of into the Greyhound buses of Canada, if you want. And then uh, sold that to this company, got a number of shares, became the CEO, and then uh, himself sort of changed the company pretty dramatically, probably brought it down to about 15 companies, let's call it, uh, 15 to 20 companies, and had a series of, of areas. Uh, of which transportation, of course, was the, 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 the beginning, so we'd kept that. But we had also some uh, mineral company, pulp and paper companies. Uh, and, um, and my father ventured also at that time into an insurance company and to a mutual fund company. And those were actually the foundation of our company today, as it, as it turns out. And so as my father evolved in, in his career, he um, pruned that down to a smaller number of companies, let's call it 10 or so, but with still a pretty big array of, of, of companies, all of which today uh, the foundations are still in the group, whether it be the media uh, or the financial services. But we decide to shed the other sectors because um, the we, buses, including the buses, yeah, including the buses, which was a, I still remember the day that we did that. It was quite an emotional event, and the the idea was, I guess, um, when my brother and I took over and said, well, you know, w what can we do with these different assets, and where can we be, let's call it champions or be number one? I'm sort of, you know, we all have our little ideas of how do we should, you know, run companies, and and our thought, my brother and I was we should try and focus on being number one in one or two sectors. And as a family business, knowing that capital is limited at some point for a family, you can't be issuing shares all the time because you get diluted, um, well, we decided to, to pick financial services, which we had already a good start on. And we were very fortunate because in the last 15 years, we were able to consolidate the insurance industry in our country and went from being number six in our country to number one in our country by buying two of our competitors. Uh, sort of in intervals of about three to five years, we absorbed these different companies. And then we did the same in the mutual fund business. We had a big competitor. We were already in the top, probably the first or second in the country. Uh, the banks were starting to get in the mutual fund business. We were able to buy a big competitor, and it vaulted us up into a strong leading position. And then we continued in that with that strategy even in the last few years. In 2006, 2007, we bought Putnam, which is a big mutual fund company in the U.S. Well, so far, so perfectly bland. Here we seem to have just another corporation that's just a feel-good story about a family that came into power in a company and managed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and create a worldwide business conglomeration that has thrived and profited because of the careful stewardship of the family. And uh, they've made a lot of money because of that and apparently garnered some interesting contacts with people like ex-French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Nothing to see here, move along, right? Well, perhaps not so. And obviously to find out more about what this 
company really is and the Demare family in particular and who they are and what they're doing, we will of course have to turn to alternative sources of information. So why don't we start by taking a look at a very interesting and in-depth profile of the Demare family and power corporation, which was written by Konrad Jakobuski in the Globe and Mail, the national newspaper of Canada back in 2006, which is a very, very extensive, very long and detailed uh, profile. So I would suggest you go and read through it for yourself. Again, it is still very much the official history, uh, but it does start to give an idea of just how powerful this family is and how much uh, it has connections and deep roots in a lot of what's going on in Canadian politics in general. So uh, just reading from the opening of this uh, article, it says, The Demare family, a London Daily Telegraph reporter explained to her readers in 2004, is Canada's equivalent of the Rockefellers or Vanderbilts. A European can be forgiven for making such an unsatisfying analogy. Lumping the Demare in with America's best-known dynasties of the Industrial Age is a stretch. The Vanderbilts and Rockefellers amassed, and in the case of the former, mostly blue, their wealth and influence in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The Demarais are nouveau riche by comparison. The family fortune is not even 40 years old, if one chooses the 1968 takeover of Power Corporation of Canada as the paterfamilias Paul's establishment's consecration. And it goes on from there. Again, there's a, quite a, a bit of detail about the family and its history and some of the, the power politics that they have played over the years. But some indication of why this is important and what their power and influence has helped them to achieve comes, for example, from some of the interesting uh, indications of their foresight, their surprising and uh, prescient foresight on a number of issues including uh, not only this one, for example, it's uh, talking about André Desmarais, one of the two sons of Paul Desmarais Sr., who have since taken over the company, and it's talking about how he accompanied his father on his frequent visits to the People's Republic of China, the elder Desmarais having sensed before most of the world that there was a sleeping capitalist giant beneath the communist veneer. A lot of effort and money was put into building this relationship with China, knowing that there would not be any return to the shareholders of power for a long time, says Mulroney, that's ex-Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who also has deep ties to the power corporation and was on their legal team uh, for some time. But today, Andy is probably the best connected Canadian operating in China. Power owns 4.6% of Citic Pacific, a massive Hong Kong-based conglomerate that invests in power generation, aviation, it's a large shareholder in Cathay Pacific Airlines, and infrastructure projects in China. When Quebec Premier Jean Charest led business leaders on a trade mission to China last fall, it was André who got the VIP treatment from state officials, not Charest. And uh, later on in this article, it says uh, Power also saw structural change coming to the financial service industry before many others clued in. The same year it, was, it sold Connie B, Power unloaded its controlling stake in Montreal Trust for a 23% premium. The buyer, BCE Inc., which was pursuing an ill-fated diversification strategy. The late 1980s real estate boom had been a bonanza for the trust industry, which specialized in commercial mortgages. But the recession and regulatory reforms that removed barriers between the bank and trust businesses doomed the trust industry to oblivion. BCE sold Montreal Trust to Scotiabank a few years later at a loss. Well, those are some interesting indications. Uh, the Desmarais being involved in China decades before any other business opportunities had even begun to peek their heads up there. Exactly like the Rockefellers, in fact, had uh, really opened up the Chinese market for uh, Citibank and uh, thus had really paved the way for the renormalization of American relations with China. So the Desmarais were there back in the 1970s before before anyone else really and are now paying the dividends or reaping the dividends of that with their ownership or partial ownership of Citic Pacific. And uh, of course, they also were able to see what was happening in the financial services industry and get out and uh, divest themselves of Montreal Trust just in time, just before the markets took a big dip. 
And also, uh, for people who are following along at home, the uh, the Power Corporation has had significant ownings and stakes in various media conglomerates and companies, including Bertelmann in the Europe, which it managed to uh, to get rid of at a profit shortly before uh, the bottom started to fall out of the newspaper business in Europe and around the world. Uh, similarly, they also had a uh, uh, ownership of Southam newspapers in Canada, which they divested themselves of in 1996, once again, shortly before the bottom started to fall out of the newspaper media market. So time and again, these people seem to have been ahead of the curve and known what was coming before it really arrived. And this is where we start to get a sense of what the real power of power corporation is. And uh, it's certainly uh, interesting to look at some of their connections. So to find out more about the connections of the Desmarais and how that might give us an indication of how they are able to predict the financial future so well and position themselves accordingly, let's turn to an interview that I conducted last week with Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com, a frequent guest on the program, and someone who has written extensively on this subject, most notably in an article that came out in May of this year called Meet Canada's Ruling Oligarchy, Parasites Aplenty. And in this article, uh, Andrew Gavin Marshall does an admirable, admirable job of marshalling all of the, uh, the information that is available there on the uh, power corporation and their connections to the global power elite that is perfectly out in the open in the public record for those who seek to find it. So let's take a listen to a short excerpt from this interview with Andrew Gavin Marshall talking about the power corporation, the Desmarais family, and their connections to the global power elite. Sure. I mean, the the Desmarais clan, essentially our our version of the Rockefellers. Truly, um, they're a dynastic uh, family in Canada. They rose through uh, the patriarch uh, Paul Desmarais Sr., who rose to the top of Power Corporation, which was originally a utility power company. But now the name truly fits, um, and it's expanded largely into financial services, energy, oil. Uh, they're essentially Canada's largest corporate footprint in China. Um, now the two sons of Paul Desmarais Sr., André Desmarais and Paul Desmarais Jr., have really risen uh, to the position of uh, co-CEOs of Power Corporation. They're on several other boards. Uh, Power Corporation also has shares in GDF Suez, a major European uh, corporation, industrial giant, essentially. Um, they have uh, several shares in uh, insurance companies all across Canada. Power Financial Corporation is another subsidiary. Uh, and they have uh, extensive reaches through think tanks. For example, Paul Desmarais Jr. is on the board of the Canadian International Council, which is the Canadian equivalent to the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, they're also members of the Trilateral Commission, have attended meetings of the Bilderberg Group, have shared directorships um, at the uh, International Advisory Board of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, one of the sons even served on the International Advisory Board of J.P. Morgan Chase for a while. Uh, so they have connections uh, with the Rockefeller dynasty in the United States through various think tanks and uh, uh, corporations and boards of directors. Uh, but also they even have connections with the major European financial dynasties, including the Rothschilds. A member of a European Rothschild bank is also on the board of directors of Power Corporation. Their influence within Canada is especially interesting to the uh, political class. Uh, there's not a single prime minister in Canada since the 1970s uh, that is not in some way connected with the Desmarais family. So you had Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who uh, had close connections to the Desmarais and Power Corporation, and after he left office, he joined the board of Power Corporation. Uh, of course, Brian Mulroney rose through the ranks uh, at Power Corp. Um, and has been a, a longtime family ally. Uh, Paul Martin also rose through the ranks. Uh, Jean Cretien's daughter married uh, André Desmarais, uh, married André Desmarais. So uh, they're actually family connections in some instances. 
And, um, and then with Stephen Harper today, we also have connections through some of his ministers who have either come from Power Corporation or left to go join Power Corporation. And apparently the connections between Harper and the Demares were facilitated by uh, Brian Mulrooney, no less. And so they have connections also with Bob Ray from the NDP, uh, with the Parti Québécois, so all of Canada's main political parties. Uh, and especially in Quebec, where the Desmarais family are based, right here in Montreal. Uh, and they have connect extensive connections with Quebec's current premier, who may not be premier for a couple more weeks, uh, Jean uh, Charest, and uh, the Liberal Party here, as well as the Parti Québécois. Um, so they really have their uh, uh, fingers in every dish, so to speak. Once again, Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com. Well, that the Power Corporation and the Desmarais family in particular are very rich and very well connected is beyond dispute for anyone who cares to look at the information there openly available in the public record. But the obvious follow-up question to this is, so what? Yes, of course, this family is rich and they are well-connected and they do have those political connections, but to what end are they putting those connections and what kind of influence are they exerting over Canadian politics and even broader international politics as the family has certainly branched out into the international sphere? Well, that's a question that I recently put to Canadian researcher and author Lawrence McCurry of CanadaAwakes.blogspot.com as we talked about the power corporation and what kind of influence it is asserting with its power and political connections. So we've touched on this, but let's explore it in some more detail. This obviously points to some sort of power structure behind the scenes that is quite different than what we are told is operating, that Canada is a democracy and that the people have an input. Obviously, there's a lot of connections going on at the top polit political and business levels. Why is this a problem? Why should people be concerned about this? Well, you know, uh, I, an example of that would, would be the... Uh uh, the food for oil scandal in in Iraq, uh, pre-war pre Iraq, uh, the, the, the world were putting sanctions on, on Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And, and the company that, that was in charge of, of negotiating this so-called food for oil deal, because they were basically starving the people of Iraq. And, and, you know, when that came out in the media, um, they said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll trade them food for oil. Well, who was in charge of that? Turns out it was a, a company that, that had ties to Power Corporation's uh, holding firm and that Paul DeMarais was, was getting rich off this food for oil deal. You know, and it's not really about money. You know, at, at some point, these, these elites get so much money that I don't think it's about money so much as it is about power. You know, that, that money is nothing but a tool to, to pr provide um, a, a means to, to control government, okay? Um, for, for example, the, um, uh, Paul D. Murray was involved with an organization called the, uh, the Canadian the Canadian uh, Competitive Council, you know, which basically uh, wrote the entire uh, security and prosperity partnership agreements between the United States and Canada. I mean, this man is, is directly working to, to get Canada to divest itself of its national sovereignty. You know, people are, are protesting right now against the, the oil pipelines coming out of the, the tar sands project in Alberta, you know, and at the same time, these guys are investing in railways, uh, knowing that, 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 that the, the pipeline will never get built because they're funding the protest against the pipeline, while at the same time, they're investing in extra tankers so that they could move it by rail. They never really wanted to build the pipeline in the first place. So, you know, what happens is, is they end up buying both sides of a conflict and playing them against each other, knowing what the outcome will be, 
you know, and, and they do the same thing in politics, you know. Uh, you could say, oh, Paul DeMarais controls the Liberal Party. Well, he controls the Conservative Party as well. And, and when it comes election time, it doesn't matter whether you vote Conservative or Liberal, the guy that Paul DeMarais has put in that position is still going to get elected Prime Minister. That's exactly right. I mean, it's such an insidious uh, position that, that they've really managed to infest themselves in. And uh, and really, as you point out, I think part of the, the problem is not simply the the accruing of money. I think that's one issue. But the fact that money is an accruing of power as well, as power corporation would, of course, denote. So let's let's talk about how that power is being wielded. Obviously, it's being wielded to control both sides of issues in order that the company can profit. But there, there has to be a, a guiding ideology behind that, and I think you've touched on it with things like the, uh, the, the creation of the SPP. But what is the overall picture, do you think, of, of families like the Desmarais and others who have this type of insidious behind-the-scenes power? Well, you know, now you're getting into the realms of what they call the tinfoil hat stuff, okay? Um, there's no question in my mind. That, that people like Paul D. Murray and the, and the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers are interested in a one-world government. Um, I, I think what they want is a one-world banking system and a one-world government. Then they don't have to worry about issues of foreign ownership of corporations and the way they move their assets and their, their uh, associations around. Um, this has been long planned for through organizations like uh, the Bohemian Grove and the, and the uh, Council of Foreign Relations and organizations like this. And the this. Trilateral Commission to which the De Marais also have uh, ties. Trilateral Commission, exactly. And the, um, the, the conference that they, they, they just had in the United States, the... Um, Bilderberg? The Bilderberg, thank you. My, my mind just went blank there for a minute. The Bilderbergs, exactly. And, and these are all organizations that, that Paul D. Murray is, is very closely associated with. You know, and so what these people want is a one world government. They want to consolidate everything they've got. You know, right now these, these holding companies, they, you know, they, 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 they work with, with other people who are in the same position, like a, a very close associate of Paul de Marais is uh, Belgian uh, financier Albert uh, Ferre, um, who's, who's like the, the, the European counterpart to Paul de Marais. And, and their, their interests get so intertwined. And you got to keep in mind, they're not only working with their own money. It's not like, like one rich guy with a big pile of money. These holding companies are involved in financial institutions. You know, their, their, their uh, official uh, stance is, is that they're, they're uh, taking care of other companies' pension funds, for example. Paul D. Murray has control over most of the pension funds in, in Canada. Well, you know, that's money that he's playing with, too. And it's easy for, for one corporation to buy another corporation under this holding company. And, you know, you could spend a lifetime just dissecting the financial connections uh, with a company like Power Corp. You know, and in the long run, they're not only playing with their own money, they're playing with everybody's money. Because he's got control of that money through his, his financial companies, through the banks that he controls through the, the massive pension funds that he controls. And in my opinion, eventually, they're probably looking to just wipe the slate clean. You know, um, I, I think basically we're heading for a, a complete financial collapse. Um, now, mind you, this is just my opinion, but this is the way I see things coming down. You know, Europe is is so close to financial collapse. Um, just Greece or Portugal or Italy or any one of those countries uh, pulling out of the European Union could collapse the euro. The same true for the American dollar. The American dollar is, is, is being propped up in such a precarious manner right now. Um, very many good economists 
are, are expecting it to fall apart right after the U.S. Uh, federal elections. So what happens if the euro fails and the American dollar fails at the same time? Well, you've got a worldwide collapse of currency. I think what's going to happen is, is, is the currencies are going to collapse. They're going to allow a, a period of mayhem in the streets and hardship on people because the economy will basically stop. <clears throat> Nobody will have access to their money in the banks. The supermarket shelves will go empty. I don't think they'll allow this, this mayhem for uh, a long period of time, but just long enough to scare the hell out of everybody. And then they're going to come in as a as a world bank through through uh, the World Bank and 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 the UN and come out with a world currency, you know. In in other words, reset the whole thing. And and what these people are basically doing is is looking to consolidate the power that they already have to make it more easily. Uh, you know, because if you don't have to worry about all the value of all these different currencies, you know, it's easy to take take money from Canada and buy a corporation in China, you know, or or, or take money from a holding company in in uh, England and and buy a diamond mine in Zimbabwe. All of this paints an awful and by now all too familiar picture of a very few global, well-connected, financially independent and wealthy elite who are puppeteering politics from behind the scenes and which basically renders your and my input into the political process null and void since that entire political process seems to be bought and paid for long ago. And unfortunately, as I'm sure many of the listeners to this podcast and to uh, the alternative media generally will know, for a lot of people, the constant uh, putting up of people like the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the Desmarais and uh, many other families on the international scene who do seem to have this control, putting them up on that pedestal as rulers or would-be rulers of the world, really puts into perspective the, uh, the the problem, the crux of the matter. What is to be done about this? What can be done about this? If politics really are so well-controlled by the elite and the well-connected behind the scenes, then what does it matter what your or my input might be at all? And this is unfortunately the spot that we often come to time and time again. And unfortunately, not a lot of the alternative media puts its emphasis on what I believe to be the correct point, which is that we should stop focusing on the political games they want to get us involved in and stop giving them our power as individual human beings to live our lives free of their control without any need for any big violent overthrow of the government or any big revolution, but simply by taking our natural rights and powers and responsibilities back into our own hands, which is as simple as... A thing to do and as difficult a thing to do as really withdrawing from their system and creating the alternative communities that we want to live in. Now, some indication of this point comes, in fact, from some of the, the mainstream press and even the, the denials, the very few denials that the Desmarais have bothered to issue about their own power and control over society. So, for example, the New York Times of all outfits ran a profile on the Desmarais back in uh, January of 2007, and it was uh, run under the headline, The Name is Power and It Fits. And in that uh, article, at the very end, they managed to insert a bit of official denial over the Desmarais' uh, connections and power and influence. And it says, quote, Critics occasionally charge that the family's political connections give it unfair advantages. The man close to the family bristled at that idea. As he sees it, Paul Desmarais became politically active in the late 1960s, somewhat out of personal interest, but largely because of the rise of Quebec separatism at the time and the terrorist acts that followed in 1970. And the family connections, he added, were often coincidental. André married France Chrétien long before it was obvious her father Jean would become prime minister. Paul Martin, another former liberal prime minister, was already a power executive when Paul Desmarais bought the company. Brian Mulroney, a long-serving conservative prime minister, was power's outside labor lawyer, well before he entered politics. 
We live in a village in Canada, and there are a lot of circumstances which come together which make it appear as if there's some great manipulation, the man close to the family said. These are the coincidences of life. It might be more notorious than substantial. End quote. Well, that's an interesting denial, and I think it does uh, flip the logic around on its head because un it does not really undermine the fundamental idea that uh, that the Demare might be using their political connections to create the advantages, which in turn give them even further advantages. So that, for example, the person connected to the Demare family who's refuting these conspiracy theories in the New York Times is saying that, oh yes, Andre married France Chrétien, the daughter of future Prime Minister, then future Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, but that doesn't matter because Jean Chrétien was not really positioned to become Prime Minister at the time that they got married. But then again, doesn't that indicate that if his, if, if André Chrétien, Paul Desmarais Sr.'s son, had married France Chrétien, then wouldn't they use their power and connections, which they already had from the money and uh, power and influence they'd already accrued, to make Jean Chrétien more of a figure in Canadian politics. Similarly, for example, uh, when Brian Mulroney, they say he was a labor lawyer well before he entered politics. Well, once again, how did he become such a political superstar in the political system? Doesn't that speak to the fact that the power corporation coming up from within those ranks helped him to get ahead in politics? So I don't think that really refutes the underlying assertion that the Demare are using their political power to gain influence and control. But, but even taking that on board and saying, well, it's all a coincidence, and Canada's a small place, so everybody who's anybody knows each other, and they all move in the same circles, and so, of course, there's going to be, every single prime minister is going to somehow be connected to power corporation. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Even if we take that on board, perhaps it points to something else entirely. Perhaps it points to the idea that these people are not as all-powerful as they like to lead us to believe they are. For those of us who are interested in actually looking behind the scenes and actually finding out who power corporation is and following some of these threads, we inevitably come to the conclusion that the Desmarais are puppeteering many of the Canadian po politicians and the political class and what's happening behind the scenes. But again, perhaps we are giving them that power by believing in that power, much in the same way as the uh, the uh, Dorothy and the, the lion and the, 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 the tin man, etc., give the power to the Wizard of Oz by believing in the Wizard of Oz and not looking behind the curtain. And it takes a toto sometimes to unveil that curtain and show that it's just a weak, pathetic, frail little man puppeteering a big stage show. And so some indication of the fact that the Demare might actually be attempting to do that come from a very interesting article that appeared in Bloomberg in 2009 talking about how Buffett loses to Desmarais as power exceeds return. And basically the, the gist of this story is that uh, in the 15 years prior to the writing of this article from the mid-1990s till and the end of the first decade of the 21st century, Power Corporation, in fact, had a better return on investment than those who invested in uh, Buffett's uh, operations, which are set as the gold standard for investment for whatever reasons, uh, and Buffett, of course, being very much tied into this power structure. As people will know, of course, uh, one of the most infamous examples was the fact that he was holding his little annual golf tournament on September 11th, 2001, and uh, lo and behold, many of the people playing in that tournament were the heads of the corporations that were uh, that were in the World Trade Center on 9-11, so they were safely out of the state uh, on the other side of the country, and who dropped in on their meeting and gave them a personal address later on 9-11 before he had spoken to the country at all? Oh, George W. Bush, uh, who went to off at Air Force Base in Omaha. So again, uh, very interesting connections with Buffett. But here's this Bloomberg article talking about how uh, Buffett actually lost to Power Corporation in terms of in return on investment. And this article gives some interesting uh, insight into that process by which the political elite maybe trying to attempt to manipulate us into believing that they are all-powerful and all-knowing all and all-able to manipulate everything and, and thus rulers of the world. And it starts off with some very interesting description of the Desmarais estate. It says, uh, quote, Deep among the pine forests of rural Quebec lies a private estate the size of Manhattan, a refuge where French President Nicolas Sarkozy has gone to relax. Former U.S. Presidents George W. George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton have played golf here on 18 meticulously groomed holes with a bright yellow cottage for respite at the 13th tee. Pheasant shoots are orchestrated from the hunting lodge, 
Opera is performed in the music pavilion. An original of Auguste Rodin's The Thinker and a statue of Thomas Jefferson adore the rough granite hills. At the heart of the property is a grand residence surrounded by formal gardens called Cherlieu, which means beloved place, that's modeled on a 16th century Palladian villa. This is the home of Paul Demaret Sr., a white-haired Canadian billionaire whose obscurity outside Quebec masks his family's vast connections and influence in global business and politics. They keep a very low profile, says Brian Mulroney, who met Desmarais in 1965 and, as Canadian Prime Minister from 1984 to 1993, introduced him to President Ronald Reagan and Bush. That's the way they like it. End quote. And later on in the article, they draw that, uh, that, that, that idea of pulling the shroud of secrecy over their own family and their own power and influence in order to get people interested in that, in, in that potential intrigue and power lying behind the scenes politically. And uh, it goes on to say, quote, The family's mystique is fed by its policy of avoiding the press. No one really knows the full extent of their power, says John Aiken, an analyst at Dundee Securities Corp. in Toronto who covers Canadian banks and insurers. They are an enigma, and I think they like perpetuating that. The father and sons all declined to comment for this story. End quote. Well, again, a very interesting article. Lots of information on Desmarais and Power Corporation in there, so I hope you'll go and check that out from the show notes for today's episode. But again, the underlying point here is that, yes, these people have power, they have money, they have connections, but they only have that in their world and in their sphere of influence. And there is an entire other world that you and I and everyone we know inhabit that has nothing to do with the multi-billionaires and their multinational corporations and what they are doing to the world by, by way of those corporations. It has to do with the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis and that we can affect with what we do on an individual level. And that is the power that, at least at this point, before they start re-engineering the human genome and doing all of the scientific dictatorship uh, nonsense that they are, have been lusting after for so long, while we still have the power to act within our own sphere of influence with a certain degree of latitude, that is the power that really can change the world. And this is the power that they cannot take away with us from us without us giving our consent. This is an important point, and one that Andrew Gavin Marshall made in our conversation last week. Uh, it's um, It sounds very complicated. It seems like there's this huge monolithic, uh, it's a David and Goliath type situation, of course. So people feel isolated and they feel like there's nothing that they can do. But it's actually quite simple. All you have to do is just start taking actions. I mean, if you look just simply at Detroit, this is a city where there has been, it's in a depression, in an economic depression. It's uh, deindustrialized, incredibly poor. But people in their communities, especially the poor urban communities, have simply started doing things like growing their own food. You know, so it's, we need access to food, we need to have food for obvious reasons, and it needs to be cheap and accessible, so let's just grow it ourselves. I mean, that's a type of direct action which simply moves around institutions. Uh, It doesn't require overthrowing the government or battling uh, the police on a day-to-day basis there to repress and control you. Uh, It simply means you have to take small actions because if you take, start taking various small actions in different local communities and uh, interacting and reaching out to other communities both locally and globally, uh, you simply move around the system as it exists. You simply create something new entirely. I mean, even if you look at the educational system, it's institutionalized, dominated, and profit-oriented. So simply create a new educational system. You just get people together. You start talking about uh, new uh, venues for uh, sharing knowledge, for making knowledge accessible, uh, for talking, discussing, teaching, learning, listening. And you can just do this going around the system. You won't get an official degree out of anything like that. But, I mean, even people who have degrees today don't have the chance to even get a job with them. Uh, so it's, it's, you simply make the system as it exists obsolete. But the only way to do that is to actually start taking small actions, which may seem in the large context of things uh, irrelevant, but they're the most important way to move forward. And in fact, they're the only way to move forward. 
word. And that's why it's not discussed because people at the top are afraid that if you actually realize that, that if you actually realize that it's just about small community actions as a start, uh, then you might actually make them obsolete and irrelevant, uh, which is what we should do. Well, that is an important point. I couldn't have said it better myself, and I hope that people will take that to heart, that message to heart, because once again, the problems that are being created on the international political stage and all of the machinations and manipulations that they are doing on that stage that you and I have no power over and can't influence is not necessarily the point of living this life. And if the point is to create the world we want to live in, that is something that you and I can do, and we affect every single day with the choices that we make. So when you decide to buy something from a big box retail store, or it's made by Chinese sweatshop labor, or uh, that's, uh, that's uh, could easily be garnered from other means, then you are choosing to invest in that system. You are giving your money and your power to that system. Whereas if you decide to go to a local farmer's market and buy from there, or if you buy from local locally sourced uh, goods from locally sourced retailers, or if you yourself go and start a community garden, or if you participate in an alternative currency system, or if you uh, participate in some sort of open source manufacturing scheme, as we've talked about before on this uh, podcast, or if you participate in any of the other millions of things that can be done to circumvent the international multinational corporation enslavement grid, then you are winning. And it is not easy. It is a struggle. It is something that we have to work for and struggle for and toil for. And there is no end in sight to this process. It's something that is a lifelong devotion that everyone has to commit to in their own way, to commit to reducing, at the very least, their dependence on that international financial structure and the multinational conglomerates that underpin it, and propping up the local and uh, independent alternatives. That happens, that's the same in media and in finance and in retail and in uh, food production and absolutely every aspect of our daily lives. Once again, the power is ours. At the end of the day, the ultimate power is ours. It is not what the puppets on the political stage are doing or the people who are manipulating them from behind the scenes. And when we give them our power is when we lose. Well, we're going to leave it there on that note, but once again, I would like to remind everyone out there that the Corbett Report is brought to you by you, and without your support by uh, subscribing to my newsletter and or purchasing DVDs, I don't eat, and if I don't eat, then I will be an emaciated, gaunt figure that will be barely able to string together a sentence. So if you do appreciate the work that I'm doing at CorbettReport.com, once again, please consider signing up for a subscriber newsletter and or purchasing a DVD. If you can't help out monetarily, then at the very least, help spread the word about this message and spread this podcast and my radio show and articles and interviews and videos to others because we can take this power back into our own hands. We can support the alternatives that we want to see come to prominence and we can make a difference. So on that note, we will leave things there. Thank you once again for joining me for today's edition of the Corbett Report and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Do not pass go on your way to paradise And on the way there, heed this advice Never say never, elevate together Move through the clouds till we find warmer weather Calculated leaps, evolutionary steps Aggravated speech, revolutionary text Never say never, elevate together Move through the clouds till we find warmer weather Calculated leaps, evolutionary steps Aggravated speech, revolutionary text